Good morning. We are glad you're here. Probably uh, what's on so many people's minds more than anything is what's happening in our country this week. And so we want to acknowledge as we've gathered for worship a few core realities. First of all, the most probably most important four words right now as believers in our country is this, in God we trust. Okay, that, that brings us back into perspectives because uh, I know emotions are running high and sometimes there's a lot of real divisiveness and brokenness. And so let's affirm in God we trust. I also want to simply affirm that, that this is not a time for believers to be silent. And so uh, this past week, maybe you saw it, put together some basic thoughts. They're not deep, they're not profound, but I hope they're helpful. Uh, a few minutes on a video to encourage folks who are kind of tempted to bail out of the process because they're frustrated by the process and acknowledging uh, there's no perfect party, no perfect candidate, and no perfect process. But we are blessed to be part of a process, not a time for believers to be silent. So uh, maybe you're going, I'm not going to be silent, but you're connected to those who are. And so you can find it on our Instagram page or our Facebook. Uh, If you still can't find it, email us and say, hey, can I get the link? I'd like to share it with some folks. It It might be helpful. No guarantees, but it might be helpful. What I want us to do, though, now is... We are, we're profoundly the church, yes? We're the body of Christ. And because our four words are, in God we trust. Yes, I do believe our civic responsibility and our privilege is to vote. But more than that, even more than that, we pray. So uh, usually, maybe, maybe we would stand for prayer. Just as a, an attention to prayer over north, even if you're uh, watching online, maybe you'd stand wherever you are. If you're doing some other stuff, stop. And uh, let's declare that it's in God we trust. Father in heaven, we stand in this moment, not proudly, but we stand in dependence upon you, in allegiance to you, Our desire as your church is to be what you were, Lord Jesus, in this world. Truth and love. Not because everybody will join us, but because our allegiance is to you. And so, Lord, uh, my first foremost prayer is that we, the church, the body of Christ, would be the presence of Christ for such a time as this. That we would have demonstrated, made manifest in our mortal flesh is a commitment to the glory of God by a commitment to truth and a commitment to love one another and to love the world that you've placed us in. So Lord, we do declare that we want to be your body faithfully and live in a manner that we do trust in your sovereign goodness, in your sovereign redemptive plan. I pray that the church would not be silent, that we would be the voice that you intended us to be in this world. 
You haven't taken us out. You've placed us in and you've kept us in that we would be sanctified by truth and live in it. So in the coming days, Lord, would we stand in truth and love as the body of Christ, trusting in you, our Savior. We ask your mercy as the Lord God Almighty. We ask your mercy on our nation and we ask that your church would be all that you intend it to be at a time like this. To the praise of your glory, we commit ourselves in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thanks so much. You can have a seat. Hope you will uh, pray again in the coming days. In God, we trust. If you would grab your Bibles now and, and let's, as people who are committed to truth and love, uh, let's open up the scriptures together to Genesis 25. We are in this section of Genesis. We just started this section last week that we are calling dysfunctional. And I'm simply calling this section dysfunctional because God has made us to function in a manner that we would express and be a demonstration of who God is, as we just prayed, truth and love. And yet when we do not live the way God made us to live, when we don't function as we have been created to function, then relationships do not build up and support and spur on. They are divided when we're dysfunctional. They're ruined by our dysfunctional practices. So if you weren't here last week, we talked about the first dysfunctional practice in this section of Genesis, which we're not going through verse by verse, but theme. The first dysfunctional practice was favoritism. And favoritism is not how God intends we as the church to function because the scripture says clearly there is no partiality with God. And so if there's no partiality with him, there should be no favoritism with us. Because favoritism is ultimately rooted in love of whom? Love of me. Uh, I'm going to treat people according to how they will best benefit me. If you can benefit me, I'm going to favor you. If you can't benefit me, I don't need to give any time to you. That's an old way of thinking. But church, if we are the body of Christ, then we are not driven anymore by... Well, we're not intended to be driven anymore by self-love. We're intended to be driven by the love of God, which simply says, for God so loved the world that whoever, see it? It's not a narrow life. It's a whoever. And that love is practically demonstrated in three words. I wonder if they've made an impact in your last seven days. Who we invite who we're hospitable to, and whom we serve. See, if we're narrow in who we invite, like we only invite into our lives people who like us and who are like the things that we like, that narrow doesn't reflect God. If we're only hospitable to people who are like us, that doesn't reflect God. If we only serve people who are like us, who will benefit us, doesn't reflect God. So I simply want to, because it's easy to, again, lose these things. I want to encourage you as you think through this coming week, who will I invite? Who will I be hospitable to? Whom will I serve that's not like me as a reflection that as we just declared in song, I am not the same anymore. 
Why? Because I am new in Christ, and Christ is in me. It works its way out in invitation, in hospitality, and service. But lest I re-preach last week, so let me move on, because uh, I, I, could, I have that potential. <laughs> Next topic that we'll see in this section is the dysfunctional practice of foolish trades. If you don't know what I mean by foolish trades, well, first, let me just give a perspective of trading. My wife will every once in a while, not often, but every once in a while, spend money on things that I would not be interested in us spending money on. And her go-to in that moment is, oh, Doug, I didn't spend that money. I, I traded it. Look, I have this in place. And she thinks that if it's a trade, then you didn't spend the money. It, it's cute. It makes me smile, but I think, no, we spent it still. We spent it. Uh, yeah, we got something in return. But she's going, no, if it was a trade and a good trade, then it was worth it. And that I can agree on. Have you ever made a foolish trade? In other words, a foolish buy? What makes a foolish buy a foolish buy? <laughs> you paid something more than it was worth. So use whatever you want to use in terms of trade or buying. The idea is value. And what we trade in terms of how valuable it is and what we traded it for and how valuable it is. In the text in Genesis, there is a, what you might think of as the quintessential foolish trade. But there's more than just one in this text. But let's look at the most obvious one. There in Genesis chapter 25, look together uh, at verse 29. When Jacob, you remember Jacob is the Younger twin of Isaac's two boys, Esau and Jacob. When Jacob had cooked stew, Esau came in from the field and he was famished. And Esau said to Jacob, please, let me have a swallow of that red stuff there. Very much a foodie, right? Give me some of that red stuff. For I am famished. Therefore, his name was called Edom. But Jacob said, first, sell me your birthrights. He wants to make a trade, stew for birthright. Now, to fully appreciate the trade that's on the table, you have to understand what was the birthright. So, interrupt the text for this. The birthright has to do with both position and inheritance. By birthright, the firstborn son, which who, between Esau and Jacob, was firstborn? Esau was the firstborn. The firstborn son inherited the leadership of the family and the judicial authority of his father. And Deuteronomy states that he was also entitled to a double portion of the paternal inheritance. Was the birthright of significant worth? Yes, it was. So if you're going to trade it, it better be for something really good. What's on the table is... The birthright for some of that red stuff. Esau says, I'm about to die. So what use then is the birthright to me? Because brother knew brother. What's Jacob say to him? <laughs> First swear to me. I know you brother. You're a liar. <laughs> First swear to me. So Esau 
swears to Jacob. Yeah, it's a deal. You and I might think, shake on it. And he sold, or according to my wife, what? Traded. Traded, Traded his birthright to Jacob. Then Jacob gave Esau bread. Oh, so he threw in a little extra. Bread and lentil stew, and he ate and drank, and he rose and went on his way. And then Esau, and I want us all to say it, Esau despised. Meaning? He didn't see it for the worth that it was. He considered the birthright, ah, no more valuable than red stuff. He despised his birthright. So obviously, a foolish trade. It's giving up something of greater value, the birthright in this case, in exchange for something of lesser value. Red stuff. The stew. Now, again... We're calling this section dysfunctional because though this is the most obvious and clear, genuine document of a trade, we see other foolish trades in the text. Esau traded his birthright for stew, yes. But do you notice that then, if, if you know the story where Jacob ends up, right as dad is about to die, in tricking, in deceiving his father that he's actually Esau to get the blessing of dad, Jacob foolishly traded his integrity, and I just got to apologize, something's wacky with our computer today, that it's cutting off the bottom of the line. So if you think you need glasses, you don't. We got a problem here, all right? So Jacob foolishly, well, you might, but not for this reason. Jacob foolishly traded his integrity for wealth. In other words, he traded the fact that his word could be trusted. Because when his dad, who was blind and old, said, is that you? He said, I'm Esau, and he was Jacob. Why? Because he wanted the blessing. He wanted the authority. He wanted the inheritance. Now look at me, friends. Is that a good trade? Well, it all depends what you believe. Wisdom, Proverbs says this. A good name is to be more desired than great wealth. I don't know if you'll believe that or not, but that's what the scripture says. And it's just good for me when I think of what Jacob did in order to gain wealth. It's good for me when a cashier or a person places an extra dollar in change than I was supposed to get or $5 or somebody makes a mistake and I can gain on that to go, you know what, my integrity is worth more than a buck or five bucks or a hundred bucks. Or $1,000 or $10,000, is it? See, the, the more zeros, then you go, okay, is it worth that much? Let me remind you, a good name is more desirable than great wealth. Really, it doesn't matter the number of zeros. It all comes down to what do I believe is worth more? My integrity, my trustworthiness, my honesty or my worth monetarily. When I see it that way, suddenly 
because I know my value system, then it's not a hard trade to, to avoid, to resist. But when I lose my mind and go, hey, hey, they're fault my, my game. Crazy. Jacob trades integrity for some profit. Rebecca, you know who Rebecca was? If you don't, Rebecca is Isaac's wife. And you know what she did? She set up the deception that Jacob pulled off. And in so doing, she traded oneness with her husband for partnership with her son. Now that's significant to me in our culture even now because spouses, married folks, you will always be placed in situations if you, God gives you kids where you're going to have to choose. Am I going to side with my spouse or am I going to side with my kids? And I want to encourage you to side with your kids against your spouse if it's not a moral issue. Huge mistake. For this simple reason. Which relationship did God say is intended so long as you both shall live? Marriage. He said, for life. And kids, what are we supposed to do with them? Kick them out. No, it did not. It's, it's like I had a spot on my arm this week, so I went to the dermatologist, and after she looked at it, I said, so you're going to chop that off? And she said, we don't use that as where it's here. <laughs> I said, what do you mean? She said, we might remove it. So you're going to chop it off? No, we don't say that here. Nobody says chop it off around here? She said, no. I said, well, are you going to chop it off or not? Because that's, that's just life. Are you going to chop it off or not? What do we do with our kids? Ultimately, what do we do? We launch them. However you want to say it. We grow them up and out. There's intended to be a parental role that moves from dependence to independence to move them on. And listen, dad or mom, if you end up pouring yourself into that relationship that has intended to move them on, and you're going to have made a poor trade and the bill's going to come due when they've all moved on and you have now <laughs> stuck with the person that you had sided against. Don't make that foolish trade. Rebecca did. And Joseph's brothers foolishly traded relationship with their dad for revenge on their brother. And don't miss this. It's like they did exactly what dad did. And I bring that out for this importance, that we understand, again, if God has given us children, a generation that will follow us, not only will foolish trades hurt us, we set a pattern of which our children will likely follow in. Some of you older ones like me, remember the old cats in the cradle and the silver spoon? Remember that old song? The, the boy who wanted a relationship with dad, but dad never had time. And then that boy grew up to be a man, and then he wanted, and then dad wanted relationship with his grown son, 
and his grown son had become dad. And he said, kind of busy, dad, but we'll get together maybe sometime, right? Where'd he learn it? The, the, The simple proof of the song is they learn from us. So the trades we make, are you following with me? Because we see, it in jo- we see it in Jacob with his dad, and then we see his boys do it to him. The trades we make not only impact us, they set a pattern that our kids will, apart from the grace of God, they'll walk in that pattern as well. Do you and I have trades we make every day? Big and small. Yeah, this is not just ancient time stuff. I just want us to think about, and you don't have to write these down. You can if, if you can keep up. But my point here is just for us to recognize this whole concept of the dysfunctional practice of foolish trades is not for ancient times. It's stuff that you and I wrestle with today. Men and women still are going to wrestle with making the trade family, a foolish trade. Trading their family for a successful career. Of trading integrity for a promotion at work or for a profit. For trading a lifelong marriage for a short-term fling. For trading relationships for a hobby or a TV program. Maybe you've never been in this experience, but... I have found myself oftentimes, especially this time of year, when a football game that is so important, right, that's so important, and then somebody who, when I'm clear thinking, is far more important, is seeking my attention, and I don't want to give a relationship attention because this game matters so much. That's a foolish trade. That I've made. You know what helped me one time? I think I've shared this before. I was watching a game that I was like so emotionally invested in, like angry and yelling at the TV. And my wife always looks like, what is wrong with you? Like yelling, yelling at the refs. And, And I was so emotionally like charged. The game ended and the players on the field all went and started hugging one another. And I was still mad. And I thought... I have lost my mind. I am more emotionally invested than those players are. What is wrong with me? And you know what the answer is? The same thing that's wrong with most of you. (laughs) Right? Because you do, many of us do the exact same thing. We're so invested and we make foolish trades for something that really doesn't matter for something that really does, relationships. We trade eternal stuff, trade eternal treasure for stuff. That's the one that Jesus warned against in Matthew 6. We trade loyalty for lust, for a, a lifelong trust for a quick look, dependability for a drink. You know, when you step back, you go, How can that drink be so important that I would ruin my whole reputation of dependability for a drink, but lots of people get there. Some of you are living there right now. You have traded 
dependability for a liquid in a glass. Trade impact for ease. You know, all of us, I think, in our heart of hearts would like to have an impactful life. But we often never get there because we'd like to be impactful. But can I be impactful from my recliner? Because I want to live life in my recliner but be impactful both. Impact takes energy, sacrifice. We don't want that. So we trade a life of impact for a life of ease. We trade peace for worry. The last couple of weeks, the next few days, that trade's happening all over the place. And here, I know some of you will hate me for this. If you have lost the peace of God in your life, then turn off the news. Give your heart and mind a break. Stop scrolling. Stop checking all the recent polls because who knows what, well, who knows about them anyway. But seriously, give yourself a break. I'm not telling you to live blind, but sometimes you're worried because you have feasted on media and famished for the scriptures. Make a better choice. Make a better investment, and you won't make this trade. Absolute truth for popular opinion. Whole denominations and churches are falling off and away from evangelical commitment because they're exchanging absolute truth of the scriptures to stay, quote unquote, relevant for popular opinion for pleasing God, for pleasing people. You get it. There's, there's so much involved in the trades we make. All right, so those are some examples. And you could probably pick others from your life if you were honest and looked at the foolish trades that you might make. What I want us to do now is recognizing this is not an old-time problem. This is a real issue. So much so that if we're honest in this, none of us are thinking, have I ever made a foolish trade? We're all recognizing we have all made many foolish trades. So the question is what this. When I make a foolish trade... We tend to think, well, why did I do that? Here's a better way to ask the question, why did I do that? What was I thinking when I traded something that when I was clearly thinking I would go, that's of lesser value. Why did I try to trade something of greater value for lesser? What was I thinking? So I want to do simply what I call an autopsy of this foolish trade. Oh, last one there, spirit-empowered living for my best effort. The autopsy of a foolish trade. When Jacob, back to the text which you're open to. We're gonna look at it more carefully now. When Jacob had cooked stew, Esau came in from the field and he was, what? Famished, meaning he was hungry. 
And Esau said to Jacob, please let me have some wallow that red stuff there for I am famished. So the reason, the setup, and don't miss this, the setup for why he makes the foolish trade is that he has ignored an appropriate God-given desire. Now, it doesn't mean he couldn't have said, no, the birthright's worth more than that. But an evidence here of when you and I are going to make a foolish trade is it may be because we have ignored God-given appropriate desires, like a healthy diet. A healthy diet requires a discipline that is not spiritual, except that it's spiritual in that it keeps you from being in that place where Esau was, where your physical desire, because it's been ignored, is setting you up to do foolish things. It's reality. When we're, if you've never heard halt, halt, don't make a decision. If you're hungry, angry, lonely, or tired, halt. Because when we ignore God-given appropriate desires like a healthy diet, regular physical activity, just practically, we make poor decisions when we're tired. We make rash decisions when we are hungry. When we have not stayed fit, appropriate sleep and rest. Intimacy in marriage. This is a, this is a clear warning in 1 Corinthians 7. You might want to write beside there, 1 Corinthians 7, because there uh, Paul warns that there not be any refusal of physical intimacy within the marriage for long. His, his statement is this, don't withhold from one another for long. And if you do, only for prayer for a short period of time. And then return to intimacy because a married couple that ignores God-given appropriate desires, desires for intimacy sets themselves up for foolish trades of lust and flings and failures outside of the one relationship. Social interaction, halt, hungry, angry, lonely. God has made us to be in community. And sometimes, and some of you will relate to this more than others, sometimes because of your emotional makeup, you just want to retreat. You want to avoid people, and you want to just kind of isolate yourself. That that decision to isolate yourself can very much set you up then for making other foolish trades because you were made to be in community. You were made in the image of God, a triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit who have relationship with one another. You are to be in relationship with people. It is always... Dangerous when we isolate ourselves. Sorry again. That says relational reconciliation. In other words, God recognizes our community will never be perfect. Married folks, has there ever been brokenness in your marriage? Yes. Okay, yes. Come on, you can say that. Yes. 
It's what you do in that moment. Do you just live with it? Bury it, try and move on? When we ignore God's intent for confession and forgiveness and reconciliation, in that brokenness, foolish trades result. If you know, whether it's in your home, in your family, your extended family, relationships at work, relationships here at church, if there's brokenness and you're living with it, I'd plead with you, be humble, pursue as much, the scripture says, as much as it's possible to you, be at peace with all men. So as much as you can, in humility, seek reconciliation. It'll be up to the other person. But in seeking it, you will protect yourself from being more susceptible to the foolish trades that happen when we ignore appropriate God-given desires. All right, that's first. Back to the text then. Back to the autopsy. Jacob said, first, sell me your birthright now. Do, you know what Esau says to that? Watch. I'm about to, to die. Now, I'll grant you, because my kids hate when I do this. But this is more than just being an obnoxious dad. A thinking person, if Esau, excuse me, if Jacob was really interested in Esau, he wouldn't have capitalized this. I'm going to die. He would have said what? Die? Really? You think you're about to die? This is what my kids, when they overstate stuff. Really? Die? No, Jacob. No, Esau. I'd say you're probably a couple days away from that. Wasn't he? Hey, he had been out for the day. Was he hungry? Yeah, the the scripture says he was famished. Esau says, I'm famished. But when he says, I'm about to die, he has greatly exaggerated the difficulty of his circumstance. And we will be prone to make foolish trades when we exaggerate the difficulty of what's really going on. See, he would have been so served if somebody would have just said to him, hey dude, I know you're hungry, but you're not gonna die. You, you, could, you, you have enough strength to go make yourself a PBJ and keep the birthright. Now, what, how, how's that play out? How's that play out for us? When people say stuff like this to me, my boss is the worst. Not to be obnoxious, bad, but you know what you need to say at that moment? The worst? Hey, maybe hard, maybe difficult, maybe a pain in the neck, but the worst? My spouse is the worst. The worst? Maybe not always responsive. Maybe not good at some things that are important to you. But the worst? Now you may go, oh, that's silly. No, no, watch, listen. When people say stuff like, it's the worst, you know what they're setting up? Justification for what they're about to do, which in the rearview mirror will be labeled foolish trade. 
We exaggerate to justify the foolish decision we're about to make. I can't live like this anymore. Probably can. And again, I'm not being sarcastic. But that's an exaggeration of the difficulty of the circumstance. So when a wife sat across from me and said, I would rather face the judgment of God than live with that man. Mm. I think you've made him too big and God too small. I think you have exaggerated. I can't help myself. Hey, if, that's, if, if you're in Christ... That's not a true statement. It's not an exaggeration. It's falsehood. You have everything that you need for life and for godliness. So what I'm telling you is this. When you hear yourself thinking those things or those things start coming, I couldn't help myself. It's a justification for a decision that you're about to make that the rearview mirror is going to reveal foolish trade. Don't exaggerate the difficulty. He was not about to die. True or false? Yeah, he was not about to die. Exaggeration sets up for that failure. All right, back to the text. The rest of verse 32. I'm about to die. So of what use then is the birthright to me? In other words, if I die today, who cares if I was going to get a double portion 20 years from now and I'm dead? What's he thinking about? Because he thinks he's about to die. What's he thinking about? Right now, the immediate. And you and I are about to make a foolish trade when I get focused on the immediate and the temporary. When I, when I start thinking only today, not long term, or not even tomorrow. I think uh, I've shared with you, maybe you were here, about my little grandson, oldest grandson, when he was two. We're all together as a family. We're having a meal, and the meal is over. We've had chocolate chip cookies for dessert, one of my favorite, one of his favorite. And uh, his dad has clearly said to him, two years old, no more cookies for you. And I watched him look at his dad. Literally, that's what he did. Looking at his dad, he reached out, thinking that he was faster than the eye. <laughs> Grabs a cookie, takes a bite, throws it back on the plate, never breaking eye contact with that. And he's my grandson, but you know what I thought at that moment? You're an idiot. Because for number one, just this little bit, it's just a little two-year-old mouth. He got, it was a little cookie and he barely got like 10% of it. And immediately he was in dad's arm and they were headed to the bedroom. And I thought, not worth it. And then the sounds from the bedroom were declaring, not worth it. And I've told you, I have never forgotten that because I've thought, how many times in the moment did I think foolishly, I'm going to do this to God? And it's, it's 
the decision that's, but I want it, I want it, I want it. And that's what he'll say, my little grandson. But I want it, but I want it, I want it. And I get that. And you foolishly take it when you are only thinking of the moment. It's why people trade lifelong marriage for a look. Right? It's why we trade eternal treasure for just some stuff. So we're just thinking now, here. There's, there's no looking up and going, that doesn't make sense, except for in the moment. And that's where Esau was, in the moment, and not beyond. So can I, can I turn our look from Esau to Jesus? Fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before him, now watch, the joy set before him in the immediate, no, the joy set before him in the long term endured the cross, the immediate, despising the shame, the immediate, and has sat down, now the long term, at the right hand of the throne of God. Do you see that? You see, he did not make a foolish trade for the immediate and sacrifice of the long term. He said, no, for the joy set before me, I looked past the immediate. I saw the honor and the glory of the Father and being seated at the right hand, I'll take the immediate. The cross for the long term. More like Jesus Less like Esau. Back to Esau, verse 33. Jacob said, first swear to me. So he swore to him and sold his birthright to Jacob. And Jacob gave Esau bread, lentil stew, and he ate, that's Esau, ate and drank and rose and went on his way. It was like no big deal. And here's why. Well, I should say, I want to be careful here. Here's why I suggest why he sold it and he went on his way like it was no big deal. The text does not explicitly state this. I think the overflow of the text implies that Esau did what he did because he thought he could gain the lesser, the red stuff, without losing the greater, the birthright. I don't think Esau in any way thought, oh, I'm really making a trade here. He's going, I can have my stew and my birthright too. I don't know that that's where the phrase came from, but what do we say? I can have my cake and eat it too. It's a lie. (laughs) It's a little rhyme we made up to help people. No, 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 you can't have your cake and eat it too. That's what Esau thought. Esau thought he could have the stew and the blessing too, that he was not going to lose the greater. He would just get the lesser and hold on. Folks, well, well, first of all, why do I think that? Because when dad ends up blessing Jacob, Esau is livid. He goes ballistic on dad. He never thought he was going to actually lose it. And when he does, he determines, I'm going to let the whole family grieve for dad, and then I'm going to kill my brother. 
Why? Because he stole it. That's what Esau says. He stole it from me. Never mind that trade we made. I never intended for that trade to really be a trade. Right? I hardly ever run into a person who genuinely entered into a marital affair thinking it was going to cost them their marriage. They thought they could have the affair and the marriage too. That they were smart enough, sneaky enough, that it wouldn't cost them. Because had they really thought I'm really making this trade and they looked beyond the immediate and looked to the long term, they had gone, no way. I'm out on that trade. Not worth it. Why do we think it's worth it? Because we think we can get it and not lose the greater. Doesn't work that way. Jesus again Whoever wishes to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. What's it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? You see, Jesus is simply saying, which is greater? All the wealth, all the world, or a soul that lasts forever within the presence of God? It's going this, because this is all going to burn up. This will be joy forever. Now watch, are you looking? You can't hold on to this and have this. You can't grab the lesser and still get the greater. I know it's the lie we want to believe. I know it's the life we want to live. No, I'm going to get this and get this. And Jesus could not be more clear. If you hold on to this, you lose this. But if you'll lose the lesser, if you'll lose the lesser, <laughs> you'll gain the greater. So it comes down to then this question. What matters most? Right? What matters most in our life? And I think the beginning to the end of foolish trading is deciding what really matters most in my life. Now you can deceive yourself and you can ignore some God-given desires and set yourself up to make foolish trades. But if you and I would determine, here's what matters most then we would begin this process of going, no, I won't make foolish trades because I will have set the price tags correctly. So what matters most? Well, I don't have time to unpack it, but as I asked this question from this foolish trades text, I was reminded we began 2020, it seems like a long time ago with COVID. We began this year with a actual sermon called what matters most? And we determined God, love, and people. What matters most? 
as it relates to God loving people, pleasing God, loving people. That might seem so basic to you, but that decision, really determining that in your life, because there's a lot of folks who would claim believing in Jesus, who would participate in religious activity, who when it comes down to it would not say, what matters most in my life is pleasing God and loving people. But if I would, don't miss this. This is why even this seems so simple, struck me as so profound and helpful in foolish traits. Because I realized that if I would get that straight in my head, that every decision, every choice I make today, tomorrow, and the coming weeks, if I run it through the grid of this, what's pleasing to God and what's loving people, you know what? I'd never make a foolish trade again. And that's an extreme statement, I know. This is why the beginning is setting what matters most. And if everything get, gets run through this trade, hey, this for this, let me ask first, let me think first. What pleases God? All right? What's loving to people? If I'll run it through that grid, run it through that filter, that's simple. I'll be done with foolish trades and the ruin that those foolish trades bring in the relationships that God's put me in. You may think, oh, I know that. If you think you know that and that's true for your life, then you should probably ask yourself, then why am I making the foolish trades I'm making? Because our decisions actually reveal what we think matters most. So foolish trades are revealers to me that I can say pleasing God matters most, but sometimes I just want to please myself. And I've given myself away. So can we come back fixing our eyes on Jesus because Jesus, listen, Jesus never made a foolish trade in his life because he lived with what two priorities? Please God and love people. Although he existed in the form of God, he, Jesus, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Why would the incarnation take place? Why would the crucifixion take place? Because Jesus said, the way I'm going to live is this, what pleases the Father and what is loving to people. And what is it? God becoming man and God dying in man's place through a substitutionary death on the cross. And what was the outcome? Next verse. For this reason also God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name. It was a brilliant trait. Seemingly foolish in our thinking. But the humility that led to the incarnation, the humility and obedience that led to I give myself as a ransom for many was because what was at the top of his list? 
pleasing the Father, and loving people. And when you and I would have made a foolish trade, he made a wise trade. I'll trade temporary suffering and temporary loss and temporary difficulty and temporary pain for eternal weight of glory. Would you take the elements that you received when you walked in? If you're watching online, maybe you'd grab the elements for the Lord's Supper that I encourage you to grab before our service began. Because what are we doing? We're remembering Jesus because Jesus demonstrates how we put foolish trades in our past. So uh, if you haven't used these before, take the, the clear wrapper, seal off first, pull out the wafer if you would, then take the next shiny, seal off, and then you'll have access to the juice. And always have to do the process. All right, now, if you have them in your hands now, this, friends, are symbols of the greatest trade that you've ever been offered. This is the reflection that he who knew no sin became sin for us so that by believing in him, he would take your guilt, my guilt, my sin, your sin. He would take it. And you know what he'd give us in return? Forgiveness righteousness, abundant life, and eternal life. Jacob offered Esau a foolish trade, and he took it. Jesus offers you the greatest trade you could ever make. Don't foolishly reject this one. That he who knew no sin is offering you his righteousness, and he'll take your guilt. You could be forgiven and free, set free from the slavery of sin by believing in Jesus. These, not by taking these elements, but by believing in the person they remind us of. So before we take, maybe you would just declare, close your eyes if that helps you. Just declare there now, Jesus, I'm trusting in you to be my savior my forgiver, my righteousness, and my reward. With gratitude for the greatest trade ever offered, if you've received it by faith, we take now with gratitude to our Savior. Take with me. Thank you, God, for your love that sent your Son to be our Savior. And thank you, Lord Jesus, for not making the trade of protecting yourself, 
and living in the immediate, but taking in obedience to the Father our sin. You are our greatest treasure, Lord Jesus, our greatest reward. You deserve our worship. Thank you. Thank you. Would you stand with me and let's declare that in all of life, there is none greater than the, G- than the Lord Jesus, our Savior, that he is better. Let's declare this together with Matt. saying, the less likely we are to make foolish trades. So I hope you we go in the power of the Spirit, remembering that. Just want to remind you again, if you're at home, you have questions about what you just heard, Doug is going to be starting his Q&A uh, very shortly. If you're in the room here, you can watch that a little bit later. Um, I hope you would do that. And just another encouragement, would you not keep your story of Thanksgiving to yourself? We've got people over the room next to the table where you can share your story of Thanksgiving. And we could share that with each other in a couple weeks. And if you're at home, do that on your phone and send it to us. Thank you so much for being here. Grateful you're here. Have a blessed day.